Hello and welcome back for another instalment of the Northern Agenda podcast. It's the podcast for you if you're sick of hearing about the petty rows of our dysfunctional royal family and want to hear more about the political stories that matter to our great region. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, which publishes titles like the Manchester Evening News and I write a daily politics newsletter called the Northern Agenda. Politics really got back into full swing this week, I think, and there was plenty to go at in the North. Rishi Sunak was up in Leeds to visit NHS staff and patients, but decided to go by RAF plane rather than take his chances on our struggling railway system. And the row about what's to blame for the mass deaths of crabs and crustaceans on Teesside, is it industrial toxins or a naturally occurring algal bloom, went to a whole new level with pieces on both sides of the argument in the Times newspaper. For the first time also, information about sexual orientation was included in the census, giving us a chance to get a sense of the size of the LGBTQ plus communities in our towns and cities across the north and later in the podcast the northern agenda's dan mclaughlin talks to a pride group in hebden bridge the west yorkshire town with perhaps the biggest gay and lesbian community outside our major cities about their continuing fight for equality in the so-called happy valley but first here's some sobering statistics for you there are currently two and a half million people out of work due to long-term ill health with the estimated cost to the taxpayer running into the billions. It's a big policy headache for Rishi Sunak as he tries to tackle some of the huge skill shortages holding back our economy. And there's a regional angle to it too, as workers in the northeast are twice as likely to be forced out of the labour market by sickness as those in the southeast. This week, Jonathan Ashworth, Labour's shadow work and pension secretary who grew up in Greater Manchester, used a major speech to accuse the Conservatives of disincentivising work and he set out Labour's plans to reform out-of-work support and give those with ill health help them back into jobs. He's promised to devolve more employment support to allow local areas more control over what they want. So I want to hear more about this and it's great to uh, welcome Jonathan to the podcast. Jonathan Ashworth, welcome. Hello, hello and absolutely delighted to be on the podcast as uh, although I sit for a Midlands constituency I'm a northerner, as you uh, as you highlighted, and uh, uh, so I'm really, really pleased to be here and uh, to have a to have a good conversation about all these issues. Fantastic. So, as a starting point for people who aren't familiar with this whole to- this whole subject area, why are there so many people out of work due to long term sickness, and why is it worse in some regions like the northeast than in others? I think that is a brilliant question and it's a great way to start because there are so many different things going on here and there's no one silver bullet policy solution to all of it. So what is going on? We've got, just so um, listeners are aware, you know, unless you follow this policy debate in a very wonky way, sometimes the terms and, and uh, that with labels we use can be a bit confusing. You've got people who are unemployed. We've got what... Uh, 1.2 million people or so unemployed across the country. Actually, predictions that were, uh, uh, that's going to grow by around half a million because of the economic uh, slowdown that we're in. in uh, um, but on top of that, you've got a bunch of people now who are designated as economically inactive. That means they're out of work, but they're not looking for work. And, and in total, there's around 9 million of those. Who are they made up of? Well, some of them are students. Some of them are people who have taken early retirement, but a growing chunk of them 
around two and a half million are people who cannot work because of long-term uh, illness or disability. And this is a this is an increase of around half a million or so. Now, it's always really, really important in these debates, and I would just want to emphasize this, that for people, people who cannot work, people who cannot work deserve a social security system that gives them security, makes them feel included in life, uh, and does not threaten them, and so on. And and and, and because there will be there will be listeners, I'm sure, who will be thinking, "Oh, here we go again, um, forcing trying to force me to do something I'm, I'm not able to do." But there are another group of people, according to various surveys and statistics, who say that they would want to return to work if given the right help and support. And one of the things I've been talking about is how do we give people that support? And I and I believe, as I'm sure we'll get into in more detail, a better way of delivering that support is asking local areas, whether that's Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester or Oliver Coppard in South Yorkshire. I've just been on the phone to him just before we started this co- uh, podcast, actually. You know, ask asking these areas, we're not asking, you know, shifting the resources from Whitehall, the resources and the powers to local areas, because local areas best know how to... Uh, design the services which are needed for local economies. But but what is going on? Um, some of this is a growing number of people are out of work for reasons of mental health, anxiety, depression, stress. That is pushing more and more younger people out of work. And we know, particularly we know across the North, I mean, I grew up across the North in the 80s, and we always remember youth unemployment. If you're out of work for a particular considerable amount of time as a young person it has a long-term scarring effect it risks you being on the margins for the rest of your life so it might not be the traditional youth unemployment of the 80s but more and more young people out of work for reasons of mental ill health and not getting any help or support and then you get this debate about why are all the over 50s retiring some of that is because they got access to a pension pot maybe got maybe feel reasonably comfortable in their house but are they making decisions which are in their long-term financial interest? That's the first question. But increasingly, a lot of people in their over 50s are being forced out of work or giving up on work because they might be waiting for a, nip, a, a, a knee operation or a hip operation or a hernia, and they can't get it on the NHS. So there's all these things going on, which is now having an impact on the, on the labour market. There's a growing burden of ill health in society. That is not to say pe- people themselves are a burden, and I wouldn't want anyone to... to confused misconstrue me in health world when you talk about your population becoming sicker you talk about the the burden of mental health the burden of cardiovascular disease that is growing in society because we are getting less healthy as a population and we've got problems accessing healthcare. but if you can bring services together at a local level you can help people return to work so you mentioned that giving more local areas more power over how this system works and we'll come back to that shortly but in terms of the sort of more general aspects of your plan you want to reform the assessments that people have to do uh, in order to get employment support or potentially employment benefits just take me through what what you'd like to do and how it sort of differs from the system that we have at the moment yeah well the, the system that we have at the moment not only disincentivizes people i think it it lacks compassion it is a, a stressful arduous awful awful process and um, And it's called the work capability assessment, where you are uh, forced to go along to an office to meet someone you've never met before, to answer a set of questions you don't even know what you're going to be asked, um, in order to prove 
that you're not able to work and you have a right to the relevant benefit. And you have these terrible stories of like people being advised to go to these interviews looking, you know, you literally get this, you know, they say to them, don't, don't go, don't smarten yourself up because you get, you, you literally get stories of them saying, well, you look all right. <laughs> you, know, you don't, you don't look like you can't work. You know, it's, it, that is how uh, awful these processes are. So you get, people get told to sort of, you know, go looking a bit disheveled because people, because it's, particularly because the processes are so sort of um, um, sort of designed for a different age, really, when when the major factor for, for people not working was, say, um, physical inju- in- industry, injury in a sort of old-style industrial, um, um, you know, setting, which obviously still happens, sadly, but increasingly in the modern age, we're talking about things like depression and stress and anxiety, and, and that isn't properly recognised or understood by the employment services uh, uh, assessment regime, so so first of all, we want to reform that system and have and have a more sensible approach. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, once you've been through that process, because it's so horrible, you understandably never want to go through it again. So you're worried that if you do try a bit of work, if you do try and go and do a few hours working, you'll that that then. Uh, 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 and it doesn't work out for you, that at the moment triggers another work capability assessment. So I'm saying people should have a, a bridge back. They should have a glide path back. They shouldn't have to go through this process again. And that way you de-risk the journey into work. You, you give people an incentive to, to try out work. And, and, and it is, you know, as I say, I will, and I will always continue to underline this, there'll be people who, don't, who can't work and that's fair enough. But people who do want to work, and in some circumstances, um, uh, being in work will be good for your mental health in some circumstances, then we should help people and support people to move into work. But that doesn't happen at the moment. Although, although, who knows? Because the Times newspaper today had a, has had a briefing from government sources, as <laughs> whoever they are, which seems to suggest they're about to copy all my ideas, but who knows? Who knows? Right, yeah, I was going to ask you ask you about that. I was reading that same piece, and it, it says that there's going to be a health and disability white paper due in the coming coming weeks, which will recommend reforming or scrapping the work capability assessment system. And at the moment, they, ministers want to remove this perverse incentive to prove how sick you are and replace it with a system that encourages claimants to show what work they might be capable of taking. I mean, it's, I guess it's uh, perhaps a bit suspicious from your point of view that this emerged a couple of days after you give a speech outlining something quite similar. I mean, is it not the case that you yourself and the Conservatives are maybe in a, a fairly similar place on, on, on this one? Maybe there's a bit of a consensus? Well, we will see. I mean, the devil is always in the detail on, on these uh, on these reforms. And although they've, it, is, it is curious that they do appear to have briefed to a newspaper something not a million miles away from what I was uh, outlining earlier in the week. Even though the, um, the the Tory spin doctors put out a sort of press notice saying my announcements were cynical, I'm not quite sure why trying to help people return to work is a cynical thing to do. But anyway, that's what their briefing said. And now that and now they are um, copying some of them. But you know, you will have to study. We'll have to study the detail. We'll have to study the detail, obviously. Um, but what they haven't been talking about, which is the other side of this, is, is about giving people proper support. Because at the moment, the Job Centre Plus network, for a lot of people, is seen as 
It's just become an area where you are policed over your benefits. It's intimidating. It's associated with sanctions and cuts to your benefits. It needs a complete overhaul and it needs a complete reform, which is why uh, a colleague in my uh, shadow team, Alison McGovern from the Wirral, uh, uh, she's leading our reforms of uh, job centres. But also, if you, it means that if you put if you give local areas more resources and shift the powers to local areas to design services, they can overcome some of these barriers. So one of the projects I visited over the summer was the Working Well Project in Greater Manchester. And I spent time with, with Andy Burnham and his team in Greater Manchester, seeing on the ground the work that they are doing to get people in, in, into work across across Greater Manchester. Because um, they... they as part of their devolution deal, have been given a bit of money to do this, which is, you know, it's great, but, you know, we should have more of this, not not here and there where government ministers have, have agreed to do it as part of a devolution deal. It should be it should be the norm across across the uh, across our regions. Um, and that and what that does is it brings together health and health support with employment support. Which is why one of the things, I, and this is what I was talking to Oliver Coppard about as well in South Yorkshire, you know, we should be looking at now, you know, giving people employment support via mental health services, via primary care, because health now is such a barrier on on getting people into work. It's such a, it's a break on the economy. Um, so putting health and well-being at the heart of our, of our approach to uh, uh, welfare reform, I think, it is really important, and it's 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 the it's the new frontier, if you like. Traditionally, getting pe- the issues that you deal with when getting people into work with tackling childcare, and we still need to tackle childcare costs. I know they are uh, 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 such a barrier. Uh, skilling, reskilling, and in this day and age, we know there's such a premium on skills, um, which is why it's really important that skills budgets are devolved to uh, uh, Yorkshire and uh, 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 and Greater all the regions, obviously. But they should be brought together, I think, with health so that local areas can design what is the right skills offer, what is the right employment offer, offer, employment support offer, and where do you locate those services? And if you can increasingly locate some of those services alongside health, I think you can really support a lot of people to move into work. Is it your view that the way that this is done and like the, the way that employment support was offered and the way that it was put together with health services, etc., that would be up to say the, you know, the mayors in the different parts of the country they would they, they wouldn't be directed by central government about how they did it they would have free reign to work it out for themselves so Andy Burnham might take a different approach to whoever the mayor is in in the northeast or even you know, might take a different approach to Ben Houchen in the Tees Valley or whoever the conservative mayor might be in North Yorkshire is that how you sort of see it see it working well see what happens at the moment is the government spends around twenty billion pounds to deliver, I think, forty-nine or forty odd different employment and skills programs delivered across nine different government departments. I don't believe we're getting bang for our buck from that twenty billion pounds, right? For start, and usually what that means is governments uh, or departments, ministers sit in Whitehall and they look at the map and they try and decide what they think is needed. And the DWP nationally commission a contract. And, and some of the big outsourcing firms win these contracts and impose, and we impose these national programs across the country. And somebody going to the job centre in Bury, where I uh, spent some of my childhood, or in uh, uh, Manchester or Cheetah Mill, where I also spent some of my childhood, um, 
uh, or Leicester, where I am, uh, where I live today, you know, you go to the job centre, you sign on, uh, a bit like you'd sign on in the old Dole office and get sort of sanctioned if they if you don't do all the requirements that they want. And if they think you've got, need some extra help, they just refer you to one of these nationally commissioned programmes. And nobody thinks that they're giving people the proper help and support and coaching that is needed. I would say that it is local areas who should design these programmes. Now, I think you're going to... It's a bit like the debate in the National Health Service, and as you probably know, I've spent a long time as the Shadow Health Secretary. You are going to want to have some um, national frameworks, some national priorities, but within that, I think you want local areas... To get on, to get on with things. So one of the things that I would say to local areas is that you know we want you to design a program, but we do want you to be looking at how you better link up your employment services with health services. You know we do want you to look at look at what is the actual support in your area for the over fifties, but you know best uh, how these uh, who is the right voluntary partners, who are the right private sector partners. You know, you know best what employers want in your area. You know best what the needs of your economy are for the future. You know best, you know, because you are working with potential, you know, you're working on economic development for your area. So you know what, know not just what are the challenges today, but what are also likely to be the challenges for the future as well in your local area. You've got a sense of where for population changes. You've got a sense of demographic change in your area. So it makes sense for local areas. Um uh, to design these services, but I, but you know, a national government is always going to want to set some some broad priorities. But I want, but I don't want. I I, I think the idea that me as a secretary of state in Whitehall can, can design all this. I mean, I've been playing with this as a as an analogy, but I've never quite got the analogy quite right. But back in the day, when 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 the health service was created, um, Nye Bevan famously said. Um, or so it was said, <laughs> maybe it's just apocryphal, but supposedly he said he wanted to hear the clang of a bedpan falling in Tradiga, you know, uh, ring around Whitehall. You know, that, as that was an example of how the sort of grip from the centre. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent of a bedpan is in a, in a, is, is in a job centre in, uh, in, <laughs> in Leeds, but at the moment, maybe it's a stapler, I don't know, uh, or a computer falling off a desk. But at the moment, it literally is all ran from Whitehall, regardless of where you are in the country. And I don't believe that is helping people into work or, or responding to the needs of, uh, of local economies. Feels like this uh, podcast is becoming a, a plug for the the Times newspaper because there's another interesting piece relating to this in the Times today that an op-ed by Ben Bradley, Conservative MP, and some uh, someone from uh, Onward, the centre-right think tank, and they seem to very much agree with you. They say mayors and councils are uniquely positioned to design and commission services that respond to local challenges, given that. There seem to be figures, prominent people on both sides of the political divide supporting the idea of sort of giving local areas more control over this. What? Why is it that we still have this system that's so centralised? Is it just sort of the the natural instinct of Whitehall to want to do things, do things itself that you know people have been fighting against for years, if not decades? Um, I think I think I think there's that. 
you know, Whitehall will always want to um, have control and whether that's under the Labour government or Conservative government, that's the history of, of, of the state since since um, 1945, effectively, isn't it? I think there's a second question is, is there's, there is an issue around um, accountability um, but the mo- and that that is something that we probably need to think about, which is which is sort of alluded to in that uh, in that Ben Bradley uh, Times piece as well, isn't it? Where he sort of makes the point that you know getting the mayors to come along to select committees and things like that. At the moment, if this all goes wrong, you know, I guess it's still the Secretary of State who gets kicked around the airwaves. So you'd want to you'd want to introduce more rigorous ways of scrutinising what the mayors, if it was them, were, were, were doing yeah. on this. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd need to, wouldn't you? Because you're spending a lot of public public money. So that you look, I'm not an expert on sort of um, you know constitutional um, procedures or, or whatever. But so I'm not I'm not offering what what the right mechanism for it is. But you would need you uh, you would you would need something, wouldn't you? There is a sort of wider debate about the the way in which mayors are scrutinised at the moment and are the right mechanisms in place. But yes, you're, you're right, something would need to be done. Now, I was reading the speech uh, that you gave to the Centre for Social Justice uh, on, on this topic. And, and when you opened your speech, you, you were talking about your your childhood in Manchester and some quite specific memories of jobs your parents had. And I think maybe jobs that perhaps some people might find surprising for the parents of someone who's risen to the top of politics. Can you just tell us a bit about, you know, your 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 childhood and what your what your what your mum and dad did? Yeah, I mean absolutely, because it is it's not the most obvious of or expected of stories perhaps. But I mean my mum and dad were working class people. My dad's not with us any longer. He died um and that's a whole different story which I've also talked about in the past. But um and my mum my mum's still around. She lives in Ermston in in um you know Greater Manchester. Um, so they, they basically, it's, an, it's a fascinating story, really, in as much as, look, my dad left school at 15. He was from Salford, odd Salford, worked on the docks in Salford as they were in the day. But he, even though he left school at 15 and had failed his 11 plus, he was, he, he was good at arithmetic. Um, now the reason why that is significant is because in the 1960, whatever it was, anyway, the government liberalized gambling laws. Where's this going? You're thinking, well, what that meant is by the 1970s, casinos were allowed to open up in Manchester and Salford. So we've got the Albion Casino in Salford and other casinos in Manchester, which is, some of them are still there with the same names, although presumably the buildings have been modernised. But one famous one opened up, the Playboy. The Playboy came to Manchester. Uh you know, the famous playboy, they they opened a casino in London, they opened a casino in Manchester, and perhaps, weirdly, no disrespect to Portsmouth, but the third location was Portsmouth, which I never quite understood why Portsmouth was the third location for the playboy. Anyway, but the Manchester Playboy Club opened, I think it was in Canal Street um, at the time, I think, um, and that's where... Uh, my dad went to work as a croupier uh, and worked as um, as a pit boss and things like that. So these different uh, roles that you have in casinos because he could do the you know the, the adding up very quickly of the people who were playing blackjack and roulette and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's where he met my mum, who was a working class girl from Ermston, uh, who was a bunny girl waitress at the Playboy. Um, and that's where he met my mum. And these and, and 
I have heard the most wonderful stories of like this is this is nineteen seventies Manchester now, late seventies Manchester. This is a time of like uh, various sort of you know Man United footballers turning up and um, you know drinking champagne and various celebrities. I've got I've got a picture. My mum's got a picture of herself with Ken Dodd, for example. Um, yes, wow, Ken Dodd. These were the big names who were coming in. And, and actually, here's a story which I don't know if this is true or if it's one of those ones that gets exaggerated in the telling. Um, but um, uh, my dad would tell the story of George Carmen QC, who um, viewers, uh, viewers, uh, listeners may recall. I think I think was a Greater Manchester-based uh, QC libel lawyer and so on. Uh, very considered to be very flamboyant and incredibly successful, and and uh, defended all kinds of different um, well-known people. Uh, also, he defended Jeremy Thorpe. In the trial in the 1970s, when Jeremy Thorpe was on trial for that very bizarre um, setup, when you know the dog gets murdered on, <laughs> he was apparently a hitman was hired for his secret gay lover and all that. That that there was, there was a great drama of it a few years ago that Hugh Grant uh, started. Anyway, George Carmen w- was defending him, and so the story gets told is that George Carmen, who was a big gambler and a big regular at the Playboy Club supposedly was at the roulette table in the Playboy Club in Manchester until whatever time, three, four in the morning, whatever time it closed in them days, right? And had to be sort of bundled out and thrown into a black cab to be driven all the way to London because supposedly he was defending Thorpe the next day in London. And as he was being driven out, he he shouted, oh, I've left my papers in there. And my dad had to run back to the roulette table and find a big stack of sort of papers and, and, and so on in his and then throw them all into the cab and be sent off down, sent off down to London. And then, whereas the next day, and he and he would have been brilliant in his, the way in which he defended Thorpe because he just was a brilliant. Uh, so your dad, uh, so your dad played a potentially pivotal role in uh, in, in in British legal legal history. <laughs> so the story was told. I do not know whether it is slightly exaggerated or not in the telling. I guess I guess we'll never know whether to what extent it's one hundred percent true or not. But it's a it's a brilliant a brilliant story nonetheless. Yeah, and because my dad's not around and George Carmen's not around anymore, but that was the story as it was told to me. Jonathan Ashworth, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the census offers a snapshot of the population, nationalities, races, religions, jobs, health, and for the first time ever, it's reflected the LGBTQ community. It's carried out across England and Wales every 10 years, and in 2021, people could voluntarily answer questions about their sexual orientation and gender identity. And now in the past week, the data has been revealed. More than 1.3 million people in England and Wales identify as lesbian, gay or bisexual. In the north itself, that figure is around the 395,000 mark. That represents 3.13% of the northern population aged 16 and over. Seven of the top 10 neighbourhoods with the highest percentage of LGBTQ residents in the north are in Manchester, whilst another two are in neighbouring Salford. And in fact, more LGBTQ people live in one Manchester neighbourhood, that's Piccadilly and Ancourts, than in any other area. The top places in the north with the highest percentage of LGBT people are, as you can imagine, city centres or university quarters, places like Salford, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, etc. 
but a name springs up in the data that might not be that familiar to you. Hebden Bridge is the first place to appear in the rankings for the north that isn't a big town or a big city. The market town in West Yorkshire has been known as the lesbian capital of the UK, but is, is this still the case today? Joining me on the podcast is Malcolm Struthers, a trustee from Happy Valley Pride. They are a group that organises a week-long queer arts and pride festival celebrating LGBTQ life in Hebden Bridge and the surrounding areas. And Malcolm is also the interim operations manager for the Brunswick Centre, who have recently taken over LGBTQ youth services in Calderdale. So Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Does it surprise you that Hebden Bridge is relatively high up in the rankings when it comes to the north? Uh, to be honest, not at all. Uh, I think Hebden Bridge has been known, as you mentioned, as the, the lesbian capital of the north for quite some time. And I think certainly over the past decade, I think we've seen even more gay men moving into the area, the area diversifying even more, becoming more well known for being such an LGBTQ plus friendly place to be, that of course it's bringing more people in. So I think actually the census just kind of confirms what I suspected. Could you describe what LGBT life in the town is like now and what, why has it got this reputation as, well, previously as the lesbian capital? Yeah, well, I think I think it goes back to the 1970s, really, when Hebden Bridge was a town, like many other in the area, in relative decline. Uh, an old mill town, uh, post-industrial, was kind of, you know, losing its way somewhat when it kind of attracted a lot of squatters with more of a bohemian lifestyle, a creative lifestyle, writers, painters, musicians. And it was really through the arts that I think Hebden Bridge started to then re-flourish. And then in the in the 1980s, I think that attracted uh, a lot of uh, lesbians to the area, partly because of that creativity and that you know kind of hippie lifestyle. Uh, and it really became quite embedded within the 80s and into the 90s as a very alternative place to be. And when I think a town like Heaven and Bridge becomes very open to alternative lifestyles then it's going to attract people who want to be who want to be their true selves who are maybe not finding that they can do that in other places so then naturally they'll gravitate to an area where where they can be themselves and Hebden Bridge was very welcoming and open and open to people who wanted to do that so I think that's where it's kind of came from and has evolved and grown quite organically over the past few decades to become this town where being different is celebrated. And you certainly get that feel in Hebden Bridge that, you know, it's a very beautiful, picturesque market town, but you walk around and you see so many different faces, you hear so many different voices, and there's a real celebration of the alternative, of which I'm very proud that Happy Valley Pride is an amplifier of that. So, well, put quickly, we might as well talk about Happy Valley Pride. What what exactly is it? What what does what does the group do? Well, actually, the history of Happy Valley Pride is quite interesting because, given what we're talking about, I think there was a sense of Hebda Bridge being, you know, really queer, LGBTQ plus friendly. Everything's great, lovely, fantastic. Then, around uh, two thousand and sixteen, someone actually spotted some homophobic graffiti in the park. You know, your typical kind of thing that you would see in many places, but actually. People in Hebden Bridge were a bit taken aback that that was in Hebden Bridge, where actually, you know, 
we don't expect homophobic graffiti in the park. So there was a kind of, what do we do with this? And a group of people got together and actually decided to repurpose that piece of graffiti into a piece of celebratory artwork. Uh, we still have it, actually, uh, that piece of graffiti on some tarpaulin. And we do wheel it out every now and again when we tell the story. But it was actually that group of people coming together to look at what we do with this and how do we how do we use this? And it was decided then, actually... A lot of people thought perhaps there was no need for a pride somewhere like Hebden Bridge. And actually, there really was a need for a pride in Hebden Bridge. And that's where it came from in 2016. And really, though, we wanted to make it different. And we wanted to make it very representative of of the area. So it kind of grew into this week-long queer arts festival with a pride right in, you know, right at the highlight of it in the park now. But there's loads of events happening throughout the week. And it's really about celebrating that alternative lifestyle, celebrating different art forms, bringing people together, uh, having fun, and and going right back to the roots, really, of Hebden Bridge is celebrating that artistic side of the LGBTQ plus community as well. It's a very northern thing, that, isn't it? To turn something that was really negative, really horrible, into something that blooms into something positive. And I think... When you look at the history of queer politics in the North, well, in, in the UK, a lot of it spawns from the North, whether it's um, Mardi Gras in Manchester or in Burnley, Lancashire, and obviously Hedden Bridge itself. Is it a Northern identity that helps this queer identity sort of flourish? I certainly think when you look at when you look at Manchester, you look at Leeds, you look at uh, you know you look at Hebden Bridge, right slap bang in between both. You know, there's vibrant, strong gay communities, and it, and I think it's very much very different from what we compare and look down at, for example, in London or or Brighton. I think they're their their own unique thing, but I think certainly there there is a difference in in the north, uh, and I think there there is a there is a celebration, and I think. You know, going back to that, the origin story, as you as you like, of uh, Happy Valley Bride, it is about sort of taking something negative, turning it into something positive, uh, and it is really about sort of a celebration, but also with that with that strong message, which I think a pride should always be. Uh, one of our patrons is Peter Tatchell, who was obviously key in setting up the very first UK Pride. And, you know, he's always very keen to ensure that as well as celebrating LGBTQ plus life uh, and bringing people together, having fun, uh, we're also, you know, looking at what, where do we still need to be focusing in on? Where are the challenges? And I think we're certainly seeing that there are still many, many challenges that have to be overcome, particularly for the trans community. And we're very proud of the work we do with, you know, with, with that area as well what has your reaction been to sort of the data revealed by by the census you know it seems that more people perhaps more than ever are willing to be open about their sexual orientation or their gender identity well it's hard to say because it's the first time and as the first time i think uh you know i think we're very much welcoming that that was that was put on the census i think it, from my own point of view it was it was long overdue but I think when you look at the numbers of people who haven't, who didn't answer the question as well, that's quite revealing. But I think, you know, I think I think it's a good it's a good starting point then to then start looking at different areas and celebrating yeah, areas where people feel comfortable to to self identify, 
where there are high numbers, but also then looking at areas where there aren't as well. And I think it's great for somewhere like Hebda Bridge and Calder Valley to celebrate our LGBTQ plus communities. I think we need to also look around at places where, you know, there isn't as many people who are comfortable in disclosing that information. And another part of the work I do with the Brunswick Centre is around LGBTQ plus youth work in Kirklees and Calderdale. Uh, and we know through that work that, you know, I would say it, it's certainly different being young uh, and gay than it was when I was growing up. Uh, is it easier and to some extent, perhaps? You know, there's certainly more connections to that community, but it's certainly not easy, uh, although it may be easier. And young people are going through a lot of difficulties, a lot of, and we need to be also be looking at. So I think this is a useful starting point. It's a useful conversation to be having. Uh, and I think the, the numbers and the stats and the metrics are always very interesting. I quite like looking at all of that stuff. But behind all of that are people. And not every single person uh, who make up those numbers is having an easy time. I suppose it's um, important to point out that a lot of the headlines about this, you know, the, the census data, this is the gayest area in the UK, this is the straightest area. Well, actually, the, the important point is this is an area where people feel comfortable acknowledging their sexuality yeah. or their gender identity just because one area might not have as many people revealing that information doesn't mean that they aren't out there mm-hmm. yeah the work that we do through happy valley pride through the brunswick center covers areas as diverse as you know Todmorden and hebden bridge but also halifax huddersfield jewsbury each of those areas are different and unique as are all areas across the country. And there will be areas where people feel far more comfortable, you know, being themselves, and that's fantastic, and that should be celebrated. But what we should be trying to do is then learn from those areas to ensure that people within other areas can have those, can have that same opportunity to be themselves, really. That's what it comes down to. Now that we've got this information, what can we do with it? You know, like you said, it's a starting point. So what do we do with it now? And how can we encourage people, like you said, to be themselves? Yeah, and it's really interesting when you kind of say, look, at you know, you get these numbers and it makes the headlines for a few days and then we kind of sort of forget about it. But I think it is looking at, looking at those areas where, you know, there is those wild discrepancies in the numbers and looking at actually why and actually trying to get trying to look beyond the numbers and trying to look beyond you know the headlines and uh hopefully you know they can become a time when it really doesn't matter where you are you should be comfortable being yourself but i think what this highlights to some extent is while there's a lot to be celebrated there's also a lot more work to be done to ensure that that equality, regardless of where you're born and growing up, you know, being being LGBTQ plus, you know, it shouldn't with within the same region, within the same local authority, you could be a few miles, born a few miles away, and actually have a completely different experience being young and LGBTQ plus, and that's not right. You know, it shouldn't come down to that really. Everybody should be able to have that same experience, or at least a similar experience. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck with the festival in the summer as well. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at 
thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.